0: Good morning and welcome to the podcast. My name is Kareem Kanji. I want to thank all of you for tuning in today. Before I introduce my next guest, I want to thank you for coming to Welcome with Kareem Kanji. Uh, you could find this episode and all the other ones at kareemkanji.com. And uh, you can also find us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and everywhere else that podcasts are found, and if you could do us a solid and subscribe, and if you can, leave a rating and a review. Now on to today's episode. Bob McKenzie is my guest, he's a Canadian author, journalist and broadcaster, and most recently he has penned the book, Everyday Hockey Heroes, Volume 2, and it's co-written as well by Jim Lang. Bob McKenzie, as many of you know, uh, has been a TSN hockey insider and has covered hockey for the past four decades. He is the former editor-in-chief of the Hockey News and as well as a hockey columnist for the Toronto Star. Enjoy this conversation with me and Bob McKenzie. Congratulations on the book. The stories in here, uh, Everyday Hockey Heroes, um, are amazing. Amazing. It was... I can't remember. I I think you even said in the intro about smiling. And I caught myself I think it was smiling. Um, I caught myself smiling at a lot of these stories. Um, You know, there are some there are some sad stories but mm-hmm. even even those ones are you know make you smile because you know none of the stories sort of end off uh on a sad note they 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 end off with hope it seems uh in most of them so awesome book uh amazing stories in there and congrats on your semi semi retirement full retirement what's
1: the yeah semi retirement's probably a good way to put it There's Busy. Some months are busier than others. This is a busy month, December, with the World Juniors and yeah, right. draft rankings that I'm doing. But um, yeah, the the workload is uh, greatly reduced to a manageable level now. And are are you are you enjoying this new lifestyle? Yeah, very much so. And um, it's been a weird year, though. I mean, for everybody, of course. the pan- pandemic. So the for lack of a better term, the, the circadian rhythm of a hockey season has kind of gone out the window for everybody yeah. and for somebody who anticipated, you know, the way I thought last season was going to end and my last Stanley Cup final and the draft and the NHL awards and sort of a, a victory lap, if you want to call it that. We never really got to do that, which was fine. I mean, yeah, bigger, bigger problems in the world than, than that. But um, it, it was weird, and then everything felt off balance in the summer. You normally, I would have been shut down on July second, but then I was working until August, and then I semi-retired. But the Stanley Cup playoffs were going on until late September, early October, and in the off season was October and November, and that's kind <laughs> of weird. And and here we are in December, and they're still not, you know, playing NHL hockey. So it's kind of a, a bizarre circumstance. For everybody, I guess, but yeah, uh, and it's not quite how I envisioned uh, retire semi retirement would end or start or whatever. But nevertheless, here we are.
0: Yeah. What What are you doing um, to f- to fill in your days that that you weren't doing as much of when you were working full time?
1: Well, I mean, you kind of just get to live a little bit. Um, <laughs> and, and again, you know, the, the job was great, and I loved it. Yeah, But it it was all consuming for the most part. In other words, the vast majority of pretty much every day, certainly 10 months of the year um, from the moment you woke up in the morning until whenever you went to bed at night. And oftentimes it was waking up early in the morning and going to bed late at night. Mm -hmm. um, You were consumed by things that needed to be done or chased or followed or There were games to be watched, there were radio hits to do in the morning, there was knowledge to be had, and you felt like you had to know as much about everything as humanly possible. So no matter what you had in your personal life calendar, it could be a family get-together, it could be a wedding, it could be dinner, it could be a birthday celebration, it could be holidays, it could be anything, you never really truly got to live in the moment because there was always some other moment that you were kind of more interested in or felt obliged to be more interested in. Yeah. I, I wanted to
0: ask you this question. Uh, might as well ask it now rather than later, but I mean, I remember when you were, was it the e- editor of the hockey
1: Editor-in-chief news? Of the hockey news yep.
0: Editor-in-chief of the hockey news. Yeah. Editor-in-chief of the hockey news. And then obviously on, on TSN uh, insiders and and really like everywhere you yeah. look when it was hockey and TSN was you know there 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 you were. When you started off covering the NHL and covering hockey, um, things obviously have changed so so much um, in terms of information. Um, I can imagine you being someone that people went to to give, you know, information to, and then. Over the past maybe decade or so, I can see it sort of reversing where there's so many places where you can go for information that it might have changed. But I'm curious, like what major changes were there um, that, that you saw in terms of whether it is finding out who's getting traded or uh, just, you know, things that, that you were the first to break? Like how, what changed in your business?
1: Everything. literally everything. I mean, listen, when when I started in the business, there was no internet. If Mm. you wanted to know what was going on in another city in the National Hockey League, you had to pick up a phone, not a cell phone, a hardline phone, and (laughs) dial a hardline number at the other end to talk to a reporter in another city or to talk to somebody who worked for a team, or whatever the case may be. But, you know, back when I started in in the 80s, um, well, I started in the 70s covering junior hockey, but covering the NHL in the 80s, um, every hockey columnist used to do Sunday notes columns. And the Sunday notes column would be information you would call from other reporters or other cities over the course of the week so you might call somebody on a Tuesday and get a, a nugget about the Pittsburgh Penguins on Tuesday and you you would hold on to it until Sunday wow and put it and put it in your notebook i i, I can remember very clearly even in the 90s working at the Toronto Star and you know finding out to, from calling to Pittsburgh or whatever, that something that about Mario Lemieux's injury that nobody else really had, and and you know that's unheard of in today's you know people live tweet practices now. If somebody blocks a shot in practice and goes to the dressing room, you know about it in real yeah. time. So the whole the, the whole business is completely and utterly revolutionized, and um, so. You know, the, the, the I could I could go on for hours about what changed, what changed for the better, what changed for the worse. Um, how I I I found my I, I feel like I found my niche because of the inefficiencies of of the market when when technology changed and that you know I was able in in some instances because of who I was and who I worked for at the time to maybe seize upon, you know, a, a a better way to, to disseminate information more quickly and maybe other, some other outlets were slower to it. And I gained a huge advantage in my industry for a brief period of time because of that, but mm. it helped in kind of forging who I was and what I did.
0: Yeah that's uh, that's fascinating it's, it sort of reminds me when we were talking about they're picking up a a phone wired into a wall uh there's that scene in moneyball where you know he's getting his secretary to make calls call the general manager of this and he's picking up the, yeah. the phone i'm going how does that how is that efficient
1: <laughs> oh yeah yeah so you couldn't text anybody you couldn't email anybody you, there was no messaging you If you wanted to talk to somebody, you had to pick up the phone and call them and hope that they'd call you back or you'd get hold of them yeah and uh, you have actual conversations it was uh much more in many respects it was more labor intensive but in many respects it was much more personal hmm. and um, you know there's pros and cons to to both sides of it yeah when so so I, i'm
0: I'm curious about you know, how you disseminate the information you you you've for the most part for for most of your career or what you're most best known for uh, is, is your your time with TSN And they've got programming and you're on these programs and obviously um, the ownership also owns radio stations and so on. Right. So you're sort of fulfilling your obligations as an employee um, When you get a scoop and you're not, let's say, scheduled to be on somewhere. Do is is what was the like? Do you struggle with? Should I throw this out on Twitter, um, even though there's no value to, for example, TSN? Like, mm-hmm. was there a struggle with that, or was it no? This is what I'm supposed to
1: do. Over time, we 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 batted around a lot internally at TSN. Um, we talked about that a lot, mm-hmm. and you know, initially. You know, you're right. the 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 idea was to try and drive as many eyeballs as possible to TSN.ca. The more hits they get, the more advertising they can sell. Um, You wanted to make it a destination, so Mm -hmm. that you create this sense that if you want your if you want news and information on the National Hockey League, you're going to go to TSN. You're going to go to TSN.ca to get that information. And so, absolutely. Initially, you, you normally would uh, put it on TSN.ca. And, and, and that was even before social media, before Twitter. Yeah. And, and, and quite often, it was like you would put it on there, but there was no way to really promote it outside of it being on the front page of TSN.ca and, and somebody on the radio or television saying, oh, there's a story here on TSN.ca look who just got fired or look who just got hired or look who just got traded. Mm -hmm. So you you would do that over time. it, I think it morphed into something else where, because social media gave everybody, every reporter, no matter how big a paper, uh, how big an outlet he worked for, how small an outlet he worked for, um, virtually not just reporters gave, gave anybody the ability to break news instantaneously. And, um, and so I think if you wanted to try to, you know, if the goal was for us at TSN and probably part of the reason why they hired me full, full time, hundred percent, uh, in, in around, in around 2000, um, you know, they wanted to be the source for all news and information and hockey. And so, and, and, and ideally you wanted on on TSN.ca, as I said, but over time, and more recently, you know the, they would be understanding and knowing that what's well, very competitive now, if you get a scoop, it might only last for two minutes, so you mm-hmm. want to be first, you want to be right, you want to be first, yeah, so just put it up on 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 Twitter and uh, and and that's it you know that's the means but in, because you're still creating that sense of. If, if you're breaking story after story after story or pieces of information on social media and you're doing so under the at TSN Bob McKenzie banner, TSN is still benefiting from the reputation mm. and that reinforcing that sense of people. If you want your news and information, you want to get it from Bob McKenzie or Darren Dreger or Frank Cervalli or Pierre Lebrun or whoever happens to be working at TSN on any given day. Mm-hmm
0: that is so true were there's were there stories that you know you'd hear in you know from the hockey world that um you know could be seen as more of a personal nature or not concerning the game that you'd get that for some reason people wanted out there that you'd say listen this does this has nothing to do with what happens on the ice this has nothing to do with the business of the team and so on that you would sort of let go but others would pick up um i'm curious about you know are there lines drawn especially with you being you know known as sort of the um you know the first quote unquote nhl insider
1: yeah it's i don't know i I guess the best way to answer that question would be to simply say everybody in the media business has to have sort of an internal threshold of what you know, their are guiding principles on how they're going to go about their job, and so, you know, if you're asking me, so certainly in the '80s and '90s, when I was, you know, more perceived to be on a beat, if you will, or in the rinks more, or out more, as opposed to being in the studio, or so much work being done from home now. Mm-hmm. Um, even before, even before COVID, you know, you could work out of the house a lot and with social media. Um, and the communication with so many people um, but to to be out and about and covering the National Hockey League back in, in those days you know if, if I saw a player at a bar and you know the night before a game I wasn't in I wasn't to me that that wasn't ridiculously newsworthy certainly not because it happened so often in yeah. the '80s and '90s, it was a different game back then. The, the thresholds were different. It'd be unusual now. I mean, if you saw a, a big NHL superstar the night before a game and he's in a bar, and and so I guess there's there's such a gray area to the question. So uh. I mean, I, I mean, if it's the night before Game Seven of the Stanley Cup Final and you see a star player for the team and he's you know swashbucklingly drunk at a bar, you know that's, that, that, that would probably be news. You would probably say, yeah. oh, you know what I, I, and that, but if it's, you know, nine o'clock at night and there's a guy in there having a glass of wine or, you know, even a, a couple of beers or whatever, and he's playing game 37 of the season the next day, or it's 11 o'clock or midnight, that, that, that wouldn't, uh, that wouldn't register for, for me. So I don't know. I just, yeah. I just try to use my instincts and better judgment. To decide what 's news what 's not news what 's in the public interest what 's in the best interest um, and, and what what 's on a, a need to know, and um, you know if uh, I probably made mistakes both ways along the way, but you know everybody 's got to have their own sensibilities, if you want to call them that, or, and, or guiding principles on how you want to go about your job Nice, I want to get to the book, but wait, one,
0: one question before we do. Um, is there one scoop, one piece of news that uh, you broke or you covered that you're most proud of?
1: No, I, you know what? I, I sometimes get that question, and I think I'd have a better answer for getting it so many times <laughs> over the, the course of my career. But honestly, there's nothing that jumps out at me. They all kind of run in. They all they all kind of run into each other for the most part. Um, yeah. You know, hmm. um, not really. All right. Kind of bizarre, but, you know, I can remember certain things for one reason or another. Um, you know, I can remember getting beat on some stories and not, you know, chasing things and getting frustrated that I wasn't able to confirm something as quickly as I needed to. What's one story um, you
0: got beat on that, that
1: frustration? Well, the, 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 there's, there's, and, and maybe the only reason I know this is because my colleague at TSN, Darren Dreger, was on both sides of it. So oh. Darren Dreger used to work for, for Sportsnet. We were competitors. And um, I was doing an NHL game on TSN on the night that the Boston Bruins traded Joe Thornton and, um, to, to San Jose. And Greg's broke that story while I was on the air doing an NHL game and, and I couldn't get it confirmed right away. And it was, you know, to me, professionally, I I remember that feeling of desperation and maybe a little embarrassment that he had, he had the story and I didn't, and I was slow in, in getting it confirmed. Um, so yeah, I remember that one. And then, you know, and, and then Gregs would tell you he was on the other side of it. Um, when he, when I was in Vancouver for an NHL draft, and uh, he was still working at Sportsnet, and I was obviously at TSN, and uh, I got the Roberto Luongo trade from uh, from Florida to from uh, Florida Vancouver, and uh, and and that was one that would have been right in Greg's wheelhouse because it was uh i believe it was Mike Keenan and Dave Nonis doing the deal and Gregs was pretty good friends with Mike Keenan and Dave Nonis is his cousin
2: and, oh geez. Uh,
1: <laughs> and and so i just happened to stumble upon them coming out of my hotel in Vancouver during the draft the weekend or week and i kind of heard, we'd heard rumbles about this or whatever and then i uh I saw them, and they kind of knew that they'd been caught. And I, I basically badgered them into giving me the information, and and I broke that story before Dregs, and so he was apoplectic about that. The same way I was apoplectic about Joel Thornton. <laughs> and those aren't the biggest, you know, sure. those aren't the biggest transactions in the world, but those are the ones you remember because you were scrambling to, uh, to to get it. But, yeah. You know, it, as I say, there's a lot of firings, a lot of hirings. Lots of uh, trades, uh, lots of you know CBAs and negotiations and lockouts and things like that, and and I'm sure at the time I felt like, oh, this is a great scoop I've got, and here I am, forty years later, and none of them were <laughs> jumping out at me unless there was <laughs> a unique circumstance around yeah. it. Yeah,
0: yeah. Um, let's get let's get to the to the book, Everyday Hockey Heroes. Um, Jim Lang, who's who's uh, uh, been a guest um, way back when, when we could uh, see people in person, uh, is your your co-author, um, and this is volume two. Um, so tell tell me, I guess the it, it's not for for people who would see the cover. It it almost you know it's okay. It's not necessarily about professional hockey because you've got a parent and a child. Um, but what was the thinking behind wanting to not write a professional hockey book, but to well, write was, a book about the stories of, of ordinary people, really?
1: Yeah. I, I think there's so many professional hockey books out there. Mm. There's so many players or coaches or managers or people involved in the game who write their life story. Yeah. And so if, if you're so inclined to read about professional hockey, um, there are plenty you know plenty of things so the real genesis for this book actually started outside the hockey realm so Simon and Schuster um, they published a book I, I want to say the, the the Canadian soldier's name was Jody Middick and okay. he was serving in, in Afghanistan and if I and I want to make sure I do his story justice but if I remember correctly, he was in an, an armored vehicle in Afghanistan and um, and rolled over an IED and oh. and lost uh, had his legs blown off and so the his 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 story his biography, if you will, I believe was published by Simon and Schuster. So it was very it was a bestseller and and did extraordinarily well. And I believe that uh, Jody was. Uh, you know, did a lot of motivational speaking and, and was well-known in Canada for um, the book and, and his service and, you know, what, what had happened to him. Um, in the aftermath of that, there was sort of a spin-off book, and it was called Everyday Heroes and by Simon and Schuster. And what it was was a whole series of first-person stories, some short, some long, of, of, uh, of first responders and servicemen. Um, many of whom, some of whom served in World War I, World War II, um, oh. the Korean conflict, uh, Afghanistan, um, you name it, in uh, Canadian Armed Forces for the most part. And, um, and, and it, was, it was very well received. And I think Simon & Schuster looked at that success that they had with Jody's initial book, his biography, and then followed up with Everyday Heroes, and decided that this could have an application that is, you know, as opposed to being about war, armed forces, and the experience of, of servicemen, that you could you could do this with hockey and call it Everyday Hockey Heroes. And, and in fact, the, the same premise, if you really look at it, if you look at the bestseller list right now, one of the ones that's been number one or number two for the last little while is a book by Simon and Schuster called Extraordinary Canadians by Peter Mansbridge. That's right. And and it's really this Ah. very similar template of telling stories about famous and not so famous people who are extraordinary in how they overcome adversity or inspire you with their philosophy or how they live their life or the things they've accomplished or the the barriers they've broken. And, and that's very much what everyday hockey heroes volume one and volume two was all about Was basically finding inspirational stories. um, Some on the, what I would call the, the, the the main path, the mainstream path of of hockey, but many of them, and maybe most of them um, off the beaten path a little bit, Mm-hmm. maybe from people whose names you don't recognize but you pick it up and you read the story and you're like wow that's like a really good story yeah and that really moved me and so <clears throat> excuse me that's that's sort of the, <clears throat> the genesis of um how it came about and and when simon and schuster presented the idea to me i was like well this is kind of cool because cynically i was going the way this is set up, Jim Lang is going to do a lot more work than me. Um, <laughs> um, but I'm still going to be involved in a really cool project. And then honestly, quite aside from the cynic, cynical side of it, or the practical side of it, um, I started reading the sample chapters that they showed me from the first volume. And I was like, these are really good stories. They they these really move me. And it's been a game changer for me in terms of, how I view hockey, how I view the hockey world, how I view hockey culture and um, and and how I've been inspired by all these people that uh, many of whom I know and suggested they should be in the book, some of whom I've written about in the book, but um, to have an opportunity to work with Jim and with Sarah St. Pierre, who at Simon Schuster, as an editor at Simon and Schuster. I believe was involved with the Jody Middick book first and everyday heroes. And now oh, wow. is sort of the soul and conscience and heart and soul and conscience of everyday hockey heroes, volume one and volume two.
0: Yeah. Um, so t- tell me about working. I, I remember when, um, uh, I wanted to ask you about Jim Lang when he, um, when he came on my, my, my show, my podcast, uh, just one of the nicest people I had met oh, unbelievable uh, just so generous um, just full of life and energy um, how 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 was it working with jim and, and and how are you two guys
1: very good um you know i i I, I probably knew of Jim before I actually knew him okay um, he used to be uh, on Q107, he did the, the the radio sports on Q107 in the in the morning with Derringer in the morning, and so I would hear Jim Lang on the on the radio, and uh, and then he went over and he worked at Sportsnet on air and was an, a sports anchor there, and and over time, you know, we all get to know each other a little mm-hmm. bit, and um, as you say, very upbeat guy, really positive, uh, you know, couldn't meet a nicer guy, and um, and so and. and so, yeah, so when, when Simon & Schuster came to me and said, we're doing this, we've already started work on it. This was about three years ago, right around now. Okay. Um, I, I met in Scarborough with Kevin Hansen and Sarah St. Pierre from Simon & Schuster. It would have been maybe late November, early December, three years ago. And um, met at a Starbucks across the road uh, from TSN, CTV in Scarborough. Yeah. And they told me about the Everyday Hockey Heroes project that was going to come out less than a year later and that Jim Lang was already working away on it and had some sample chapters. And so they showed me a couple of the sample chapters that were gonna be in it. And one of them was on an NHL player, Wayne Simmons, and I was blown away how how good that chapter was. And then they showed me another chapter uh, on a gentleman by the name of Wayne Wayne St. Dennis, who um, in his later teen years, in Windsor, Ontario, became blind, and then, you know, he's a, he's a mature man now in his 50s or what have you, but, um, you know, he got deeply involved with, which I didn't even know at the time existed, um, blind hockey teams and blind hockey leagues and, and with an organization called the Toronto Ice Owls, and I read the story and I said, this is a really good story, and I, I had no idea who Wayne was or that this, that blind hockey existed, and I thought that, that's a really good story. I really enjoyed that. And so I said, "Yeah, this is something that I could see myself being involved with, and I could bring some ideas to the table of people that we should feature, and I could write some stories and um, be involved in it." And, um, and so, you know, the, the the real joy in the project has been working with Jim and Sarah, and how easy it is to work with them. Um, there's no ego involved on the part of uh, of anybody, and. Um, and everybody's easy to get along with and everybody's so open to suggestions and everybody's so helpful. And Jim's a really prolific writer. He's written tons and tons and tons yes. of books. Yeah. You know, he writes like, he literally writes at least a book a year, if not more, um, sometimes two in a year. And um, yeah, it's just a wonderful experience to be involved with him and, and Sarah and everybody at Simon & Schuster.
0: Yeah. He is, he's a huge hockey fan, just huge. He's written all those Absolutely. other hockey books, yeah. Yeah, you you start off the book, um, talking about a couple of my friends, Khatija and Suleiman, who yeah. uh, I know you you uh, become friends with, and you also helped out with uh, uh, conquer COVID nineteen. Um, tell tell me about uh, tell me about uh, these two of our of our friends and, and sort of a little bit of the work that you uh, volunteer work that you did with uh, with the uh, with the volunteer group.
1: Well, first off, with the, the little bit of volunteer work I did with Concrete Co one of the things about being well known or a personality, and I'm not going to call myself a celebrity because I don't think I am, but um, when you're when you're well known and you do any little thing, you tend to get noticed for it, and you tend to get a lot of recognition and way and, and too much recognition, quite frankly. Um, so the, you know, when when you look at what Suleiman Ahmed and, and Khadija Kagi did to, you know, husband and wife team to, to basically in the middle of a, for lack of a better term, I guess, a humanitarian crisis in our country and our world for that matter, and on the fly. Basically, from nothing, start up conquer COVID-19 in in Canada and raise literally millions of dollars and get much needed ppe to frontline workers all across the country um and to do it in such rapid fashion and you know that that's incredible you know well what so i I saw what they were doing along with some of my colleagues and i Mm -hmm. thought i'm not doing anything i'm here at my house and and there wasn't a lot going on work-wise and i said "If, if there's anything i can do let me know so I said, I really like to drive. I'm happy to drive stuff wherever it needs to be driven. And so like once a week for, you know, six or seven weeks maybe. Um, I I took a drive and dropped off some stuff at, at seniors' homes or a medical facility or or what have you. And so it was literally, in the grand scheme of things, it was nothing compared to what people like Suleiman and Khadija and, and others. Um, were doing and it was just remarkable what what they did but uh, it it was funny because the weird thing about Everyday Hockey Heroes Volume 2 Mm -hmm. is that it it came out obviously it was the deadline was the deadline for getting all the copy in was in April the pandemic really hit full force in mid-March which is you know I hate to bring everything back to sports but the, the day the nba canceled their season and the day well, postponed their season and the next day the nhl did the same thing that was when basically everybody's life changed yes. you know for for some people it changed long before that because yeah. the pandemic was certainly significant prior to that but i mean the 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 crap really hit the fan on mm-hmm. march 11 12 13 thereabouts yeah and And so the, as I said, we were in the final stages of putting the copy to bed for the book. So you've got this book that's coming out in in November, October, November of 2020. And I'm looking at all the chapters and I'm like, oh my God, like we have, if, if you pick up this book in November, there's not gonna be anything in here that reflects we're in the middle of a pandemic and what happened. Yeah, with, um, with the, 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 the whole coronavirus pandemic. And so I knew mm-hmm. when I, the last thing I was going to write was the introduction of the book. And so I said, I've got to make sure that the introduction is, is heavily focused on the pandemic and our response to it, and try to find an inspiring hockey-related angle mm-hmm. to the pandemic. Yeah, and so I was sitting there and and at the time I was doing deliveries and I got to know Suleiman and Khadija a little bit and 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 Suleiman he likes to talk and we had a number of conversations <laughs> as busy <laughs> as busy as he was um and you know he would tell me he would regale me with stories of how he's a Montreal fan and then he told me about how he came to be a Montreal fan because you know his uh his parents came from India and Pakistan, and and, uh, and you know immediately gravitated towards the Montreal Canadiens. And I just, I just love the story of of how his his mom, you know, uh, just is the absolute biggest Montreal Canadian diehard ever. And you know, he started telling me stories about, you know, the in uh, at the time that they were Montreal Canadiens fans. And, and there was a, he said a Bollywood level wedding rehearsal going on at the, at the the family home. And his mom came in at night and this was going on and there was all these people there and they were practicing their dance moves and they had the music playing. And she just comes in and she says, okay, it's over and pulled the plug on the music and said, the Canadians are on TV. It's Boston, Montreal. It's a playoff game. Let's, Month. Let's we got priorities here. I love that story. <laughs> and and it and it's a great story too because you know it's 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 the story of a, of, a, of an immigrant family who comes and 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 has have, have these first generation Canadian children who you know who grow up in a in a hockey loving environment. And in the case of Suleiman, who and then of course he meets Khadija and they have their family, but and here they are, they they start this grassroots movement in the middle of a pandemic and just do, you know, stuff that is it's beyond the scope of anything you could possibly imagine. And when you talk to Schulman about it as a matter of fact, and doesn't want any credit and doesn't want any publicity for it. And, but, but uses all the hockey analogies. He said, you know, it, the whole secret to conquer COVID-19 was, was you, you start with six, you need six, just like a hockey team. A goalie, two defensemen and three forwards. Mm -hmm. And we had, we had six that we started with in the various, you know, important disciplines of the organization that led the way to end up with more than a hundred some odd volunteers doing millions of dollars of, of, uh, life-saving work. So, Mm -hmm. so that, that was, but it was a really convenient way for me to make sure that the book reflected um, something of what went on in the pandemic but also stayed true to the roots of it's a hockey story every every person that's featured in this book the common denominator is they absolutely love hockey but they yes. all couldn't be more different and how they love it how they came to love it and what their stories are of you know obstacles that they've had to overcome in order to love the game
0: yeah absolutely um you know you, you, you tell that story and um i think back to uh i sat down with um, sean fitzgerald uh, mm-hmm. Who's now with the Athletic? But he wrote uh, before the lights go out. Mm-hmm. I want to say last year, I think, is when that book it, the book came. Well, I don't, I can't remember yeah. when the book came out.
1: Might, might have been it. a couple of years ago. Yeah, last but year, the year, year, before, but yeah, it, definitely. Sean's a real good writer and yeah. Good reporter. Yeah,
0: and I sat. We sat down with him. It might have been the week after. Either Don Cherry was fired, or right was there was that whole Saturday Night fiasco, yeah, um, in it around late October, early November, right?
1: Yeah, um, I would have been right towards, yeah coming up on Remembrance Day.
0: coming up on Remembrance Day, and so and so his book before the lights go out is almost a story of, you know, it's a story of changing demographics. It's a story of yes. um. Income inequality—it's you know—it's just—it's it's, it's a story of change, right? Yeah. And 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 where hockey lives, um, you know, in in the grand uh, you know pantheon of, of Canadian culture, um, and, and so you know it was sort of a you know he takes a look. I think it was Peterborough was was yep. the team that he followed uh, to write to write the book, um, you know, and you know there's no definite. You know, here's where it ends, hockey's dead, or hockey's right. gonna gonna, you know, be be amazing. But it was like there's changes that need to be made. And then I and then I read and sit down with uh Harnarayan Singh, yeah. uh from uh, Hockey Night in Canada, Punjabi. And here's a story similar to to Suleiman's, right? Where you know, here's an immigrant, you know, falls in love with, with hockey. I think it was the Edmonton Oilers, um, and just finds his way in hockey. Understands he's not going to be, the, you know, Wayne Gretzky by any means, but has a knack for talking. But it's a, it's a it's a it's a it's a book about the love of the game. Yes. Um, and so I wanted to ask you this because you know your your book, you know, I think Sean, your book really focuses uh, not too much on hockey as a professional game, but hockey right. just as a game. You know, it's a game that is not necessarily unique to Canada, but is a Canadian game nonetheless. Um and whether you are someone, uh I can't remember the gentleman's name who played over eight hundred, uh yeah, Andrew Cogliano. Yeah, whether it's whether it's him like a professional at the highest level, you know, yeah. or or whether it is you have a story about a guy who runs a ball hockey league uh out east. Yeah. yeah. Um Christine you know and and everything in in between all mixed up. Um, But I wanted to ask all all of that to say, to ask you this, your thoughts on the game of hockey and where it sits in Canada and the future of it as a game that kids play?
1: Well, it's extremely, it's an extremely challenging thing for hockey because it's so expensive to play. Mm. And And that's the the nature of the beast. Equipment's expensive. Ice time's expensive. I mean, when you think about soccer, what do you need to play soccer? You need a patch of grass that you could get in any park, anywhere, and a soccer ball, Yeah, basically. You know, which explains why it's, you know, the game of the world. Um, You know, what about basketball? You need a basketball and you need a hoop. Can you put a hoop in everybody's driveway? Yeah, it's it's not that difficult to, if you have a driveway or a schoolyard or you know you know and and it's it's much more difficult for a sport like hockey, you know at least the on ice variety. You know, mm-hmm. hey, listen, when I was a kid, when I was a kid growing up in Scarborough, we played road hockey all the day long, yeah, morning, noon, and night, like 12 hours a day in front of my house on Baynard Crescent in Scarborough, we we would be out there and you just needed a hockey stick and a tennis ball. And and if you didn't have a net, you'd just stick two boots up or whatever the case. And that was the net. So you, you know, you could play on that level, but in order to actually play on ice hockey, you know, you had to have skates. Skates are expensive and become much more so. Um, Sticks are expensive. Gloves are expensive. Helmets expensive. Pants, shoulder pads, you know, it, it goes on and on. Um, and so there's, you know, the ice time, the rinks, zambonis, uh, municipalities have to staff these places, an artificial ice plant. Um, you know, there's a whole layer of costs that are associated with the game of hockey that don't, that are not as prevalent in other sports. And so that's, that's the number one challenge. So as as you point out and as Sean Fitzgerald pointed out in his book, The Changing Demographic, you know, the, the demographics of Canada are changing. There's been a wave of immigration and there are people of color from all over the world. Um, and in order for them to play hockey, they may not have the money to be able to do it. So, you know, you, you run the risk of dealing with a, a constantly shrinking environment in terms of your pool, potential pool of talent and players and, what have you? So that's that, that's on one level, and then on the other level is just simply because our society is changing as rapidly as it is, and the countries become that much more diverse. Um, you know, is the culture of the game changing as quickly as it needs to to reflect that diversity, or is there is there conflict? And obviously, there has been conflict of of, of the old time hockey culture. Being changed, um, the, the color of it, the, the the diversity of it, and and so there are stories, both good and bad, that you can focus on that, that highlight that. So it's a unique set of challenges for for hockey and hockey culture uh, mm-hmm. to deal with.
0: Yeah, I wanted I, I wanted to ask you this about the, the different stories. How how did you go about finding these uh, these stories? Like, how do you you know research? stories, especially, I'm, I'm thinking, you know, you want to tell stories that maybe stories that haven't necessarily been told. Yep. Um,
1: yeah. Or you want to take a story that people are maybe anecdotally aware of uh-huh. and give them a much deeper understanding of it. So instead of, instead of it being, you know, like a lot of people on social media would, would know that Jack Jablonski was a, a teenage hockey player who played high school hockey in Minnesota who suffered a, a traumatic spinal cord injury that left them paralyzed. Um, there would be a lot of people who would know that about when they hear the name Jack Jablonski, they'd say, oh yeah, that's that kid that got paralyzed on a non ice accident in Minnesota. Um, but then to have Jim Lang interview him at length and for Jack to, you know, put his heart and soul into telling that story of, of what it was like for him, what it was like for his family and the entire everything that he's been through and the ups and downs and the the, the highs and lows and, and all of that, but to lay it all out there in, in such a, a an honest fashion.
2: Mm-hmm. And,
1: and, and I'm sure it's painful to tell some of these stories, but also incredibly inspiring to tell these stories. So, yeah, the, so when you read the Jack Jablonski chapter in Everyday Hockey Heroes Volume 2, you're like blown away by this incredible young man who – who had his legs taken away from him, but, you know, his spirit is, is incredible. I and mean, now he's graduated from university of Southern California and he's working for the LA Kings and, you know, he's uh, under the circumstances in, in really as good a spot and an incredible a spot as he possibly could be. That's an inspiring story. So, you know, so as I say, I was well aware of Jack's story, but I knew yeah. how inspiring he is to me. So I thought, let's make sure that Jack's story's in our book this time because I just know if people read that story, they're going to read it. And at the end of it, they're going to go, oh my goodness, what, what, an, what a young man this guy is. Unbelievable. Yeah. And, and, and so and it's all through it. And so a year ago, August, so August of 2019, myself, Jim Lang, Sarah St. Pierre, we sit down in a boardroom in, at Simon & Schuster in, in Toronto. And we but we all just come armed with a bunch of names and ideas and concepts and we throw them on the table and we throw them on a whiteboard and write all of them down and and you start crafting, you know, why is this a good story? Why is that a good story? You know, well, maybe those two stories are too much similar. Maybe we should have somebody different. And I and I don't want to sit here and say we, we took it like an a la carte menu and said, Well, we have to have a story about you know uh, somebody who's in a wheelchair or somebody who's a, a story about a woman or a story about uh, a gay person or a story about a transgender person, and yet e- each of those or chapters are reflected
2: mm-hmm. in the
1: book it, it's It's not like we're we're callously trying to cynically trying to check off all the boxes um, but you want variety and 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 the way we all look at it myself and Jim and Sarah, and we've talked about this. The, the, you want these stories to be inspiring. And I think it's really important. And this is probably the biggest lesson I've learned from Everyday Hockey Heroes Volume 1 and Volume 2 is that there are a whole bunch of people in this game who, who love it, love it to death. And yeah, and yet they're not as accepted as they should be because they're different. So whether they're you know, black or indigenous or people of color, or whether they are LGBTQ, or whatever the case may be. There are a whole bunch of people here who get marginalized for whatever reason, Mm -hmm. within the hockey culture at times. And so it's really important, I think, for anybody out there, who for whatever reason, feels like they might find themselves on the margin of hockey culture, as opposed to being in the center of it. And that they have mentors, and they have real-life examples of somebody who's just like them, who fought the battle or fought the fight that they're trying to fight, and and came out on the right side of it, and broke down a wall or shattered a glass ceiling or got moved from the margin into the into the center of, own, of the the culture. So mm-hmm. that that for me is the is the big payoff, and the, and that's kind of the litmus test for a lot of the stories is, is you know, A, will the story inspire you? And B, if you do happen to be somebody who is feeling marginalized within the hockey community, you know, it, it, are these good mentors for you? And the answer is, yeah, they are.
2: Yeah.
0: A couple of stories I, I sort of want to talk about from the book uh, to, to end this off. Um, the Jessica Platt story
1: okay. was
0: yeah incredible. It was amazing. Is there a trade coming in? Nope. <laughs> um, just just to read that and it was uh, well, it was interesting in the way where we, yes, there was that hockey story, but you know I'm, I'm also a fan of uh, mixed martial arts, um, and there's right. a um, there's a transgender fighter, transgender woman fighter. Um, And there's always been this discussion um, about, you know, should she be allowed to fight other women? There's also that, um, I think she's from South Africa. There's that uh, 400 meter runner, I think, or middle distance runner. I can't, uh, Semenya, I can't remember her name.
1: Uh, I'm out of my wheelhouse on anything but hockey.
0: Yeah, but, um, you know, there's talk about, uh, I know, I don't, sorry, I have to correct myself. I don't think she's transgender, but she's, uh, but anyways, just to read that and and understand because Jessica talks about in in that part of in in that story about um how as she was going through these changes her body was changing and she wasn't able to keep up uh, and beat the boys that she used to um right. and so it was it was for me it was fascinating to to have that revealed that it's more than just sort of changing your appearance right it's like everything from the inside out. Uh, It was an amazing, amazing story.
1: Yeah, it really was. And one of the incredible things is that, you know, Jessica wrote that story herself, Uh, you know, obviously with some guidance and help from Sarah St. Pierre, but um, Jim didn't write that story. I didn't write that story. That was Jessica's story in her own words. Wow. And she's an incredible, And and on top of everything else, she's an incredible writer. because he, here's the thing. So you know, I'm 64 year old white male. I'm reasonably well educated, not necessarily smart, but well educated <laughs> enough. In other words, I I went to a post secondary <laughs> institution. Um, and, and so you know, if somebody said to me, "Do you know anything about transgender people?", I would say, "Yeah." I you know what I know is that. They're, they're born a certain way they don't feel comfortable with how they're born they feel like they're trapped in you know in the wrong body so to speak and and they you know their identity is is uh, is not lined up properly and they feel like they have to go to extraordinary physical emotional mental um, levels to, to to take that transgender journey and uh, go from one gender to the one that they in their own mind and heart and soul and body that they truly identify with. So yeah, I'm aware of all that on one level, but then you actually read Jessica Platt's story yeah, and, and read what it's really like to be a, a, a younger child growing up in the minor hockey mm-hmm. in, in, in Brights Grove, Ontario, near Sarnia, and to never really feel comfortable and, and to, you know, really sense and see, you know, homophobia and, and, uh, not, you know, the toxicity of of what the hockey culture can be. and And sometimes intentionally so, because there are, you know, overt homophobes in every walk of life, but they mm-hmm. certainly exist in hockey. But, but also just in terms of, you know, the terminology that's been used for curse words in hockey for years, you never really gave it a second thought until suddenly you realize well yeah using that terminology just fortuitously for point of emphasis you're you're not even being willfully ignorant you're just kind of blissfully ignorant that it's offensive to to a gay person or to a transgender person or whatever the case may be but anyways for to, to read Jessica's story and how difficult her childhood was because of um, you know not being comfortable with who she was, mm-hmm. then you know you 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 see what lengths she has to go to, from be it from you know the the courage of of confronting who you are, letting your family and friends know who you really are, and then taking that trip that requires hormonal therapy, uh, surgery, um, and then to go through all of that, and then get to the point you were talking about, yeah. which was. Okay, so I, I I didn't feel accepted before because I I wasn't my my right self I I, I wasn't in my proper identity, um, and then so now I am, and suddenly people say, well, yeah, you you don't you 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 can't play with the, the girls now because you're transgender and it's not fair and you're bigger and stronger and 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 she's saying, well, no, not really because I'm actually weaker and and I've lost so much in terms of some of the physical strength I had because of the the hormonal therapy or the surgeries that I've had. Mm
2: -hmm. And,
1: and then just, you know, again, as she describes it to go to hell and back, trying to now fight for acceptance on another level. So she didn't feel accepted as a kid for, for, for her own reasons. And now she's not feeling accepted as a transgender adult because other people are saying, well, no, you, you, sorry, you don't fit the the criteria of what, you know, men and women and, and, and had to fight that battle for acceptance, but, but she did it and she was very courageous and she came out on, I think she would tell you, she came out on the right side of it, knocked down some walls, got the acceptance she was looking for. And, you know, so it's a real, a real good story that way, an inspiring story that way. But for me, the emotional, mental um, uh, impact of of what she did and how she did it, and to to read to write it in the detail that she wrote it. Yeah, I read that story, and uh, at the end, I was totally and utterly blown away. And it was just like, wow. Yeah. Like, okay. As an as an as a reasonably intelligent or as I like to think I am sure who under who quote unquote understands what transgender is all about. After that chapter, I felt like, okay, now I've got a whole deeper appreciation and understanding mm-hmm. of what it really means. to yeah. be Transgender.
0: That's for sure. Um, I want to end off talking about Scarborough. Um, I've been in Scarborough since grade five, since grade five. Um, and, uh, and so, you know, I'm always sort of pimping Scarborough to anybody who will listen <laughs> to me. What, what part of
1: Scarborough I, did you grow up in?
0: Um, uh, Br- Bridal Town Circle. Finchin, yeah. Finch and Warden, your Bridalwood Mall. Yeah. So I went to uh, Sir Johnny McDonald.
1: Yeah, you and uh, Mike Myers.
0: That's, that's right.
1: <laughs> as well as... Um, oh Mike Johnson. Goodness. Yes, Michael Johnson. Mike Johnson from uh, TSN and former yep. NHL, or Mike Johnson. Right? That's right.
0: I was in the he same a, grade as his
1: sister, as his elder sister. There you go. Yeah. So, yeah.
0: Um,
1: so Johnny McDonald, Black Scots, if I remember correctly. The, the, yeah, and I'm wondering
0: if they're still called the Black Scots. I don't know that. I don't know. But, um, yeah, when I was there, I think a, a Metro Bowl, we won a Metro Bowl. Not that I had anything to do with it, yeah. <laughs> but we won the, uh, the, the Metro Bowl. But um, I wanted to ask you, and I know you went to Bendale.
1: Bendale Public School, yep.
0: Bendale Public School, okay, okay. Yeah, uh, Wolburn um, Collegiate. Where, sorry, where? Wolburn Collegiate. Woburn, okay, nice. Um, I found it fascinating. I did not know that Scarborough, more than any other city, is home to the most NHL players who are black.
1: Yeah, it's sort of an unofficial title. Um, I started yeah. <laughs> counting, and I, and I wanted to say unofficial because, as I said, I, you know, I don't know. That, and, and you've got to be careful because hometowns and birthplaces for hockey players, period, forget about color. Uh, yeah. Um, but just in general, like, it, it could say, like, you know, Joe Neuendijk, it'll show his hometown as Oshawa, Ontario. Because he was born in Oshawa, but Joe Newendike grew up in Whitby. He played his minor hockey in Whitby. Played lacrosse in Whitby. So okay. if you were to say, say, you know, he's a graduate of, you know, Oshawa or whatever, you'd be wrong. He was born in Oshawa, but then the same sort of thing. Sure. Some guys are some guys are born in Scarborough, but never grew up there. And there were some yeah. guys that were born somewhere else, but they grew up in Scarborough. Yeah. So, anyways, I but but um, yeah, I, I identified ten players for sure. That starting with Mike Marzen, who was born in 1955, the year before me, um, and was the second black player in the National Hockey League behind Willie O'Ree. But, you know, Mike Marzen and, uh, you know, Kevin Weeks and Anson Carter Mm -hmm. and Wayne Simmons and uh, Joel Ward and Anthony and Chris Stewart. Um, there were a couple of guys that didn't play a lot, but uh, Chris Beckford-Sue was a goalie, had a cup of coffee in the NHL. Another guy, Nathan Robinson. Uh, I might have forgot somebody. I don't know if that's 10 or not, but soon to be 11, Akeel Thomas, who scored the game-winning goal for Canada at the World Juniors last year. He's from Scarborough. So, yeah, so it, it struck me that my hometown, where I was born and raised and played my minor hockey, um, has put more black players in the National Hockey <laughs> League than any other community that I can come up with in Canada and um, which was it's kind of remarkable because you know the Scarborough that I grew up in was as I like to call it quite white yeah Um, because and and that's not to say there weren't black families in Scarborough back then there were and in the first chapter of the book which Mm -hmm. I'm sure you referenced when we talked Scarborough um, there were two black players in particular that were born in the same year as me That I played hockey against that I remembered for a bunch of different reasons, not the least of which they were black players in a mostly white game, and they were very, very good players, unlike myself. So I decided I'd like to go back and see if I could find these guys and talk to them and compare and contrast their minor hockey experiences in quite white Scarborough of the 1960s and 70s versus mine and of course. It was a year ago that I came up with the idea to do this and it was sort of in the wake of the whole Akeem who Bill Peters. Yeah. Um, you know, and, and issues of race within hockey and hockey culture. So that's, that was the genesis for the first chapter of the book that I wrote.
0: Wow. And I guess one of the players that you played with or against Terry Mercury. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm curious, you know, you, you do talk in, in that book about, you know, I think, I think they said something to the effect of, you know, we believe we could have made it in, into the NHL. Um, you know, there were factors that, you know, we just didn't, it, it the game ceased to be fun anymore. Like going to the rink, being in the dressing room, playing the game ceased to be fun because of, you know, all of the, um, you know, whether they be racial slurs or uh, mm-hmm. just, you know, all of that, that they had to deal with that, um, you know, that, that I think you admit that you never knew, you know, you never understood right.
1: that. Um,
0: and and one quite I wanted to ask you this because I know you do cover in the book that uh, you know you thought to yourself as as an analytical person who covers professional hockey for I don't know forty years plus um, that you know you you questioned well could they have and you know you know so on and so forth were you able to talk to um, you know the Anson Carters of the world and sort of understand how they grew up playing. Minor hockey, playing house league hockey, versus the Terry Mercury's. Has it changed
1: at all? Is um, it changing? I, I didn't. I didn't get into that with Anson Carter or Kevin Weeks or the Stewart brothers, Anthony and Chris, or yeah. any of those guys. Wayne Simmons, um, because I wanted Terry's story and Lindbergh's story to be their story and not mm. not distract. With, okay. You yeah. Know, and and I'm sure that I, I'm sure every one of those guys. All the black players from Scarborough that have made it to the National Hockey League probably have very similar stories in many instances, um, but you know maybe it wasn't quite as overt as it was back then, or maybe it was. Um, and and they've they've talked at various times, uh, Joel Ward and others, uh, that some of the obstacles they they've had to uh, to overcome. But you know, to to your point, um, it was really sad, really because. Terry and Lindbergh, as I said, were really good players Mm -hmm. and, and in large part, once they got to their teens, it was around when Terry was 14, when Lindbergh was 15 or 16, they both played, ended up playing on teams where they weren't comfortable on their own team, that there was,
2: Mm.
1: you know, overt lack of acceptance and, and, you know, obviously racism and discrimination against them by their own teammates. And that really yeah. that really sucked the, the, their passion for hockey right out of them at that point. And they still played right through to when they were 17 or 18 years old, the same as I did. Mm-hmm. But you know, my experience was hockey just got nothing but better for me the older oh, wow. I got. So when I got to be 15, 16, 17, 18, those were my favorite years of my hockey because I played on teams where we were close knit and the guys were great guys and we had so much fun and it was, you know, and, and for myself, I just got more confident as I got older and it was playing juvenile hockey for me was just the best. It was a wonderful experience. And for them it was, they were playing out the string basically in juvenile then wow. lost all their passion for the game. And, and, and there's only one reason why my Story was so positive, and theirs was so negative, and it was because they were black and I was white. Simple so mm. as that.
2: Yeah,
0: Bob. This has been uh, a fun and fascinating chat. I do appreciate it. I do have one more question. Sure. Uh, for you. And um, so I'll preface it with this. I asked James Dusty the same question, and I and I found out the unique way he puts on a necktie.
1: Eyes uh, it around his leg. Yeah, crazy. <laughs> yeah, I've watched I've watched him do that like a gazillion times. <laughs> I'm
0: surprised there's not like a blooper clip that you guys play. Um, or maybe you have, but s- someone should catch that on tape whenever he does that. <laughs> so the question to you, Bob, is what's one thing that most people don't know about you?
1: Hmm. One thing, boy. Yeah. I wish you'd give me a little advance notice. On that. <laughs> that's, that's one thing that people don't know about me.
0: Yeah. Hmm. So we know that James oh, Duffy there's ties... there's probably lots what? of things. There's probably yeah.
1: lots of things that they they, uh, they don't know about me, but uh, one thing.
0: Hmm. So we know, know we know that James Duffy ties his tie around his leg. Yeah. We also found out that Harnarayan Singh doesn't know how to tie a tie. Um, he gets other people to do that uh, for him. And I think when he's uh, working at home, it's his wife that ties the tie uh, for, for... Okay, him.
1: well, so we're, we're, we got a theme going here with... So neckties. maybe there's a theme. There's a theme here with neckties. So I, I always go, I only tie one knot and it's always a full Windsor. Not a half Windsor, not in hand or whatever they call those other ones. <laughs> it's just I'm a full Windsor. And the reason... I know how to tie a full Windsor and I, and I might say as well as I do is because my dad was a clothes horse. My dad was very natally dressed. My dad worked for, worked on the production line at the Havilland Aircraft and he would wear a tie to work every day and then have to take the tie off when he got to work to work in the factory and then put it back on at the end of the day. Wow because he just thought that you should dress properly for, for something like work. So he taught me how to tie a full Windsor and uh, you've got to make sure that the, the knot is straight. You've got to make sure that the, it drives me crazy when I watch TV and I see people on TV and their tie is crooked. It's not, <laughs> right, it's not, it's not buttoned right up to, the, there's a little bit of a space between your, your top <laughs> button and the the knot. It bothers me if the dimple's way off center. Uh, There's there's many things about ties that would offend my sensibilities because my dad taught me the proper way to tie a four winds or not.
0: That's interesting, the story you tell about your dad. My dad's been retired for, I don't know, five, six, seven years. And um, for the longest time, I think COVID has changed everybody, of course. But I'd go over to his house, he's not working but he is wearing uh, dress pants, a dress shirt and a tie. And I'm like, where, yeah. where, where are you going? So, so I woke up today, so I had to get changed. I had to get, he's wearing a tie and a dress shirt every day in retirement. And he very rarely wore it when he was working.
1: <laughs> that's, a, that's amazing, but not, a, not dissimilar to my dad's attitude. My, my, my dad always used to say, you dressed up, you never know who you're going to meet or who you're going yeah. to run into. And, uh, and you know, uh, so yeah, the, I was taught from a young age, but I, I didn't follow a lot of that advice because lots of days I go out looking like a, a bum.
0: I hear you. The book is Everyday Hockey Heroes, uh, written by best-selling authors Bob McKenzie, my guest today, as well as Jim Lang. Uh, a wonderful book to read, uh, especially over the holidays. Uh, get it at your local bookstore. It is uh, published by Simon & Schuster. Uh, Bob, I really do appreciate your time. Thank you so much.
1: Awesome. Thanks for having me, Kareem. Really appreciate it and uh, enjoyed the opportunity to talk about the book and to spend some time talking with a fellow Scarberian.:
2: Absolutely. Have a great one. Take care.
1: Thanks a lot.